Amen. So, um, the doctrine of resurrection, it is both in the Old Testament and New Testament. A lot of times uh, there is the mindset that you know resurrection is more concentrated in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to look at particular occasions where the power of the Lord resurrected people from the dead in the Old Testament also. But uh, within the entire uh, concept of, of resurrection, what, what we really need to get in our mind as believers is that particularly sin, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, produced death. That's what brought death into the world, which uh, fixes a, a number of things uh, regarding creation and evolution and a whole lot of other misperceptions that are in uh, Christianity and the world around us. Uh, you know, Adam's sin brought death into the world, so no death prior to that. Death being the results of sin and the way that it continues through human history God is the God that overpowers sin and the results of sin. So resurrection is the central theme to our whole belief system. Death is the result of sin. God is the counteraction to that sin, which results in death. So from the very earliest of the scripture, we're going to look at the fact that Resurrection is implanted throughout the scriptures. So to begin with, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says, Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So the overarching concept given to us from Paul, speaking to the church at Corinth, that every one of us exists under that sentence of death. And I think it's very important and very significant for us to look at the fact that you know death is a reality, you know we all kind of know that, but we we sort of run scared from it. It's only when we go to a funeral, it's only when we have you know death in our faith and our face that that we then have that intimidation and the consideration and the really sort of introspective thought on you know the fact that I'm mortal and I'm going to die and I have to face my own death. Well, what's the answer to that? Uh, you know, and, and this is the three basic questions of philosophy, right? Uh, you know, where did you come from? You know, how did you come into existence? What's your purpose here in life? And where are you going when you depart from here? Uh, so if, if you haven't properly answered any one of those, you might have different answers that you've, you know, keyed into each one of those slots. Uh, you know, a lot of people just put, I don't care in each one of those things. Where did you come from? I don't care. You know, what are you doing here? I don't care. Where are you going? I don't care. Uh, I think it's significant for us to really weigh out uh, our own existence and the, the miracle that it is in light of the fact that we've got a limited number of days on this planet. And, and we have to have our answer regarding uh, you know, sin, the resulting death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Again, I'm just building right now the concept that the, the doctrine of resurrection is throughout the scripture. We'll move into the Old Testament in just a second. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Sin has to be paid for with death. That's God's law. You know, if we struggle with that, that's something that you've got to 
come to grips with any sin, right? You know, I talk to many people that say, well, I'm a good person. And, you know, usually a person that is bold enough to say that when you examine their life, well, wouldn't you know what they are a good person? Generally speaking, someone who's lived a sinful life <clears throat> doesn't have that mindset that God should just accept me. Uh, the problem is uh, that the scripture tells us that any sin, a single sin, will cause us to experience death. We're going to be separated from God for all of eternity. So establishing that concept of being under the curse of sin and death makes it that there's the necessity of God and resurrection, doctrinally. Psalm 17, verse 15. Here the psalmist says, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. So here's an Old Testament author very specifically speaking of resurrection. He's talking about passing away, dying, and then in righteousness being awakened in the presence of the Lord, in the likeness of the Lord. <clears throat> so uh, you're going to see throughout the scripture that the word very firmly establishes this difference of how, or I should rather say, who is resurrected, why, and how. It, it very much puts the criteria on perfection. And, and just to clarify that again, right? None of us is perfect. E even as believers, none of us is perfect. Um, I, there, there, there are a couple of groups within uh, what claims to be Christianity that they, they falsely claim that once they became believers, they no longer sin. Okay? So just be aware. I mean, it's laughable uh, to describe that. But um, just be aware that there are uh, cultic groups within Christianity that teach that, you know, when they became believers, they no longer sin. Um, you know, I, I had an encounter with some years ago. I was actually working for them. I, I didn't realize that was their doctrinal position, and I was running a big digital soundboard uh, for them. And uh, we did a production meeting early in the day and uh, had it all planned out because uh, – <clears throat> We're doing a worldwide broadcast with a satellite uplink truck. <clears throat> Not that you want to hear any of this, but I'll, I'll just explain myself and why that's a false position. <clears throat> so uh, we're going to be broadcasting through time zones. And as such, uh, the people that watch the program and can call in uh, that, uh, you know, to donate support money uh, and uh, different things, uh, the call center that we give them in the morning closes down and then as we broadcast through the day there's another call center that's answering calls late in the evening as we continued this broadcast throughout the day so in the middle of the afternoon we have a production meeting and they're going through the whole process of like making sure that the character generation system has the new 1-800 numbers for the evening broadcast we don't want to be mistakenly misdirecting people to the you know previous call center that was handling our call. So we go through this whole production thing of this is what we're doing and, and we've got a production schedule. We know exactly when the minister is going to stand up and come to the front and announce that the people can call in. I mean, it's all laid out. And 
as we approach that time during the broadcast, the minister gets up and, and literally, I'm, I'll just kind of act it out. He's like, oh, excuse me, uh, John, uh, brother, can I just uh, take a moment here? I know we weren't going to ask the people to call in and give again, but could we do that, Johnny? Could we get those phone numbers up? He, he goes on and lies for a solid 10 minutes about how we had no intentions to uh, have the people call in and make donations one more time that day. But, uh, you know, he's making it sound like he literally says the Holy Spirit just laid it on my heart. That, I mean, I'm almost like wanting to just shut off the soundboard at that point. You know, I'm helping this man lie to the public. You know, we've had this plan since about 1130 in the afternoon. And now that it's eight o'clock in the evening, he's acting like it was a spontaneous thing inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's attributing his lie to God. You know, I confronted him about that later, and he explained to me why that wasn't a lie and that wasn't sin. You know, maybe you've hung out with three-year-olds that act like that, right? You know, they've broken into the cookie jar, and they've got chocolate chip cookie all over their face, and they're explaining to you why this is not chocolate chip cookie and this is not disobedience. And in fact, you're the problem. They got this cookie for you. It's not even them. They're just It's your desire for cookies that, you know, cause them to do this. It's ridiculous, the, the concept that we become sinless. Point is, Scripture teaches very clearly that our righteousness, our perfection is given to us. It belongs to Jesus Christ. That's why his death at the cross was necessary. He passed his righteousness to us. We're simply clothed in it. So this concept right, of our sin condemning us to death and the necessity for perfection is, in fact, in its root, the doctrine of resurrection. Christ's life given to us in our death, his perfection. Your face in righteousness, I shall be satisfied when I wake in your likeness, like unto Christ. Psalm 16.10 for you are, will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Clearly a prophecy regarding Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as David writes that. <clears throat> but David is writing it about himself. He's writing it about the fact that the Lord will not leave him in the state of decay, that he will resurrect him and bring him back to life. So it has an application for all believers also. If just further establishing this idea that the doctrine of uh, resurrection is an Old Testament one. Psalm 49.15. I'm just going to try to rapidly go through these. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. And, and it says Selah at the end of that. Uh, whenever you read that in the Psalms, it literally means pause and think about that. That's what that term means. Stop and meditate upon this. Uh, that's something that we should dwell upon. The Lord is going to raise us from the power of the grave and receive us unto himself. Hosea chapter 13 verse 14 says, I will ransom, ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, 
I will be your plagues, O grave. I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes, meaning he's not going to have mercy on death. God views death as an enemy that he's going to conquer. Um, I've talked before recently in our study in the book of Revelation about the fact that Revelation tells us that during the seven years of tribulation, men will seek death and be unable to find it. Okay, And, you know, lots of scholars want to then turn that into, oh, well, that's just symbolic, you know, and they try to find some reasonable explanation for that. The book of Revelation teaches over and over again that God is pouring the plagues out upon the planet during that period of time that he does in order to try and force repentance for the human race. He's making life so bad in hopes that people's hearts will be turned to him and look for his mercy and look for his forgiveness. And the way it speaks of the fact that they cannot find death uh, strongly implies that God is stopping them from doing that so that they will have an opportunity to continue to repent, right? If, if they're in their sin and they're experiencing God's wrath and punishment and they could just end their life, then they would enter an eternity separated from him. Now, if, if you're thinking that that's perhaps, you know, just symbolic or whatever, like I described, there's a great effort going on right now. In fact, a, a local scientific research laboratory is deeply involved in trying to discover why the human body doesn't continue to repair itself. Our DNA is designed to restructure our body every time it experiences illness and damage. It does it fairly well if it's a healthy body when it's younger, but as we age, it does it less and less efficiently. And the scientific community is trying to figure out why does the DNA stop repairing itself? The people that are on the cutting edge of this research are literally looking for a way to find the flaws in the DNA and repair it in such a way that they will remove death from the human race. They're not, they're not looking for uh, specific cures. This group is not looking for specific cures to specific illnesses. They're looking at what is wrong with the human DNA that it doesn't continue to just be perpetually repairing and keeping itself alive. Hey, listen, what happens if they find that? What if they find that rate simultaneously as the Lord unleashes his wrath upon this planet and people are looking for death and yet unable to accomplish it. There's, you know, things to consider in the whole process. I don't know if that's true at all, but it is an interesting consideration that revelation says men will seek death and be unable to find it. Why? Because God wants them to come to repentance. The whole point of resurrection is God wants his creation to be with him for eternity. So choosing that opportunity, opportunity you know, ahead of time, this concept that I just read to us from Hosea of how he's going to abolish death, death seems so sure to us, so firm, so predictable, right? What are the two things that are unavoidable? Death and taxes, right, exactly. You know, so, so we have this concept ingrained from us from birth that you cannot avoid 
death. And so when you present the concept of resurrection, people balk at that because death is so sure. What the scripture is telling us is no, death, in fact, was an accident caused by sin. Sin introduced death to God's creation. It was, they're fine. They have a whole bunch of, you know, referees out there. No worries. Um, so, so this concept, right, that God is going to abolish death, that, that's not abstract at all. That, that's something that's designed within creation that we can see, you know, by these scientists and others who are saying, hey, there, there's, there's a thing here that we should, you know, it should naturally be preventing death. And we need to fix it. It's it's broken. We need to fix it <clears throat> so that in the future it will prevent death also. <clears throat> Verse, uh, or Isaiah rather, we were in Hosea now in Isaiah chapter 25. Verse 8 says, <clears throat> he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people and he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. God is going to rebuke and take away death. This concept that, that God has power over death. I want to read as many of these as I can to you. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise, awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. For your dew is like the dew of the herbs, the earth shall cast out the dead. I would encourage you to remember Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, when we get over into the New Testament and start looking at the specific examples of Jesus' resurrection in Matthew, when many of the saints who had died were resurrected with him and then went into Jerusalem and were seen in the city walking around. A fulfillment of this very thing. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. We'll look at the end of this at the final judgment of God and what we refer to as the great white throne judgment, where he resurrects all who have ever lived and they stand before him and are judged according to their deeds, except for the Christians who are judged according to whether they've accepted Christ or not. So, you know, you get a pass. So don't, don't sweat that one out too badly. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 says, And if Christ is not given, your, excuse me, risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If there is no resurrection, if, if the doctrine of resurrection if the physical ability of resurrection is not part of our faith, if this is just some imaginary thing that Christians created, you know, you watch Nova, you watch Discovery, you watch National Geographic, they're constantly trying to make different presentations about how the resurrection is not a real thing, that, that it's not scientific, that it's not possible. They have all kinds of different ways that they try to dismiss through their skeptic explanations, uh, something that we know for certain happened historically. Keep in mind, right, that it is not just Christians who saw Jesus resurrected. 
the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus spoke of Jesus' resurrection. Roman senators wrote about Jesus' resurrection. Josephus was so impressed by Jesus' life that he said he didn't know if it was lawful to even refer to Jesus as a man. He considered him much more a god, you know, along the lines of the Roman pantheon of gods. He didn't have an accurate understanding of who Jesus was, but they had all historically and as a society experienced the resurrection of Jesus. Um, if, our, if we don't have resurrection, our faith is empty. It's futile. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God of our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercies has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If, if you've relegated your Christianity to simple ritual and religion, and there isn't a power in it. And, and I would concentrate more <clears throat> on a power to change your life now, living the resurrected life, like we're going to talk about next Sunday, God willing, uh, then it's really very empty. It, it is, you, you might as well choose a religion that you know, is more suited to uh, the appetites of your sinful flesh. If, if you don't have that power, of resurrection central to your belief system and your conduct, then you know it's it's a very, as Paul says, a pitiable thing. It's a powerless thing. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, not, not even death. You, you, as a child of God, are protected and preserved within his power under any conditions. It should offer you a great deal of hope. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just a few more in regard to the doctrine of the resurrection throughout the scripture, and then we'll look at some specific occasions that took place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 15 and verse 17 say, And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This infiltration of God's creation by sin and death leads us into that constant, continuous downward spiral. What was your downward spiral? You know, for some people, you look at it and you go, well, that's hideous and that's obvious and I get it. You know, they, they plunge themselves into sexual sin and drunkenness and thievery and just what a low sunken individual. Uh, you have to consider that the person who neglected every other person in their life and went to college and made a career for themselves and focused on nothing but money and neglected so many other things in life is as sinful, right? The self-centered approach to life you know, we have certain things that are unacceptable in our society, and we look at them and we go, that's disgusting. 
But then other things we look over at which are equally sinful and equally selfish. Don't, don't get me wrong. Please go to college. Please get a career. Please get a wonderful education. You know, I'm not downing anything in these regards. What I'm saying is when self and sinfulness is your central motivation, then it's as sinful and destructive as any other sin. We, we have to recognize what Christ wants for us. Our lives without Christ are sinful and death. They are producing deadly things. You know, look at the families that have been destroyed by just selfishness. You know, some someone's selfish motivations. When you're reading what Paul is saying about these are the obvious works of the flesh, right? And we go through, right? here's adultery, and here's idolatry, and here's drunkenness, and outbursts of wrath. And we go, right, yeah, yeah. And then everybody misses the fact that it says, and selfish ambition, right? <clears throat> These things <clears throat> are part of sin, and they are deadly <clears throat> to our relationship with the Lord. In contrast, the life in Christ produces life, serving others, living for others, being selfless in our existence. That's to live in contrast to what comes naturally uh, to our physical frame. So these things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. Therefore, verse or Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore, we have uh, buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in a newness of life. And there's what I'm concentrating on in the idea of next week's study. The newness of life that is the empowering that comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, we, we have to absorb the idea that from Genesis... To Revelation, what we're seeing is God creates all things, humanity and the universe is plunged into sin and death by Adam, and God is resurrecting that from that point forward. Resurrection is the central power and the central theme of the Scripture. It isn't just, oh, we get to the spring of the year and we celebrate Resurrection Sunday and there. And now what is the next subject? This is the central theme of our faith. The power of Christ to resurrect from the dead. Um, Adam and Eve were told, if you eat of that tree, it's actually worded in the Hebrew language, in dying you will die. Right? They lived for almost a thousand years. But they died instantly spiritually the moment that they ate of the tree they died spiritually and that spiritual death eventually produced physical death in their life from that moment christ was resurrecting humanity from the death that had been introduced to it lastly in regard to this old and new testament doctrine of resurrection revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 13 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Books, plural, were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And you can come talk to me about what the book of life is. 
And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged according, each one according to his works. So a resurrection of all who have ever lived is in the future. Uh, it's, it's important that we understand that uh, you know, we want to we take the escape route, right? Christ is offering us an exit plan that we don't have to experience that judgment according to our works. We can experience reward according to our works as believers. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you sort of become fireproof that you are forgiven and God's grace covers you and you experience life eternally rather than death eternally and how your works are judged are according to reward. What was done for Christ will be rewarded to you. So concentrating on resurrection, now I want to look at specific resurrections, Old Testament and New Testament that have taken place. So the doctrine of resurrection being central to our faith in every level, specific resurrections that take place, 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 17, Elijah raises the widow's son. You may be familiar with this. It happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick, and his sickness was so serious there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? He stretched himself out on the child three times, cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. <clears throat> and just for doctrinal clarity, this is one of the verses that teaches us that the soul is different than the body. Okay, If you run into people that want to insist there's something called soul sleep, the scripture does not teach that. The scripture teaches that the soul departs from the body and goes to be in eternity, wherever that is, be it in the presence of the Lord or in eternal punishment. And here we see the prophet requesting that the Lord would cause the child's soul to return to his body. So this is again, 1 Kings chapter 17. Uh, we just finished verse 21, 22 says, Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Right? The world, the unbelieving world, <clears throat> knowing and understanding and embracing resurrection can know the power of God. In our lives, listen, 
in our lives if we profess to be believers, but we just continue in the death of our sin in our old conduct, then what the world is witnessing is the power of Christ is not in us. If we live a new life, a resurrected life in Christ, it becomes evidence to the world that the power of God is in fact functioning in our lives. Second Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 33, right? So we just read about Elijah. Now we're going to read about Elisha, his servant who took over the ministry after Elijah was taken up into heaven. Second Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child, put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child. The flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him, meaning the child. Then the child sneezed seven times. The child opened his eyes and he called Gehazi and said, call this Shulamite woman. So he called her and when she came in to him, he said, pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet and bowed to the ground and she picked up her son and went out. Old Testament resurrection of the dead. Continuing with Elisha, 2 Kings chapter 13, beginning at verse 20. Then Elisha died, and they buried him. So Elijah was sort of the headmaster. Elisha was his student. Elijah was caught up into heaven. Elisha continues that ministry, has the power of God in his life to a degree that resurrection is part of both of their ministries. But now the power of death conquers even a powerful man of God such as Elisha. He has died. They buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. That was the practice, much easier than during the muddy season to get your chariots you know, through everything. It's a lot like trying to do war in Maine in the spring. You wait till the summer, you know, till things have dried out a bit. So the raiding parties have invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they put the man in a tomb of Elisha. So just for quickness, and uh, some of the translations actually record that they tossed him in. So they're about to perform, you know, this funeral and somebody just shouts out the 23rd Psalm really quick and they chuck him in the hole is sort of the attitude. They're trying to get away from this party of raiders. And when the man was let down, landed and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Kind of a unique situation. Again, the power of God is not to perform miracles. The power of God is not all of these other things that we so often think of. Those things come because what man produced was sin and the result was death. God overpowers that and gives resurrection, gives life to the circumstance. What is the uh, overarching uh, theme of Elijah and Elisha's ministry is the power over sin and death. And when someone touches that ministry, resurrected from the dead. Remarkable picture. Ezekiel 
chapter 37. Maybe you've never thought of this passage as a message of resurrection. The Valley of Dry Bones, you've probably read this, right? Ezekiel 37, verse 1, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I would say to you, that's probably the best place to make the dramatic pause, right? Hear the word of the Lord. For all of the other things that we concentrate ourselves on, all of the other things that we look to for, you know, newness of life, I'm going to start doing this and I'm going to now incorporate that. And from now on, I'm going to, it's going to be the word of God that resurrects your sorry state more than anything else. There will be other things involved, right? But it's going to be the word of God. Whenever somebody comes to me and they're in distress and my marriage and my finances and my whatever, and they go on and on and on, I listen. And what I'm listening for, I get to in the end say, have you been in the word of God? Are you daily getting up to seek the Lord and hear from him? Dry bones, dead. You're going to just speak the word to them and say to dead, dry things. Hear the word of God, and they're going to come back to life. It's a remarkable concept. You know, I say to you, what's your marriage, what's your finances, what's your addiction, what's your circumstances need is the word of God. And we need to apply ourselves to the, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live have you ever been so far through the decay process in whatever circumstances you are that you're several steps away from their possibility of there being anything lively in your life and god turns those circumstances around you know i had a conversation with a young man who was in jail we were doing when we were allowed to go into the jails and do jail ministry before coronavirus. And uh, I laid this on him. He comes to me and I've got these charges and this charges and I've already got these convictions and the VA says, and you know, in my typical fashion, I start out with, you know, a hopefulness, like I'm going to be able to just lay something great on this guy. And the longer that he goes, the more desperate I become like, Oh my word, you're in worse trouble than I imagined. And I gave him this in the end and just said, look, regardless of what your circumstances are, I trust the word of God. And I'm telling you, you can trust the word of God. And if you will trust the word of God and depart from all this foolishness, stop lying to your lawyers, stop lying to all these people. Just trust the Lord and move forward with him in truth. The Lord will protect you and preserve you. And he took it to heart. And he came back to me next week and said, I've been reading the word every day, all day. Just that's got nothing else to do. And it's really changing me. And I think I'm going to call my lawyer. And he called his lawyer. 
And he laid the whole thing out. And they went to the DA. And they just laid, no, not asking for, oh, shortened sentence, none of this. And he got a dramatically reduced circumstance. It was sent to Warren State Prison. I mean, he was going to do decades of time. And they sent him down there with a relatively short sentence. And if he does good time, he'll be out in a few years. He came back to me just bawling with it really is the power of God's word. And I said, well, you want to make sure you tell the other inmates that it may or may not work, right? You know, they may get a long sentence. In your case, it worked that the Lord protected and preserved you in this way. But the bottom line is the word of God will produce life if you will trust it. If you will listen to it and allow it to work in your life. Say to dry bones, something that's just absolutely dead, beyond dead, right? I mean, somebody dies, you know, and right there in front of you, they've been out for moments. <clears throat> Freshly dead is different than dead so long that there's exposed bones that are scattered all over and they're dried right out, bleached white. And you're going to say to that, you'll be breathing soon. <laughs> Have you ever felt like that? Where you're saying to somebody, you can trust God when their circumstances are so desperate that it's hard to even imagine that you could say such a thing. You know, your breath is going to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sin on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them. The skin covered them over and there was no breath in them. Also, he said to me, prophesy to the breath. That's interesting <clears throat> because the term breath, as some of you know, is synonymous with spirit, right? The pneuma, the spirit of God, the breath of God, say to the, the breath. So now prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up on their feet, an exceeding great army. That must have been a shocking experience to go through this whole thing. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry. Our hope is lost. We ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves. Oh, my people, I brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you. and You shall live. I will place in you, place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. You can trust in physical resurrection based upon the fact that Israel exists. They're back in their homeland as a people, existing as a nation. No nation has ever done that beyond one generation when they've been expelled from their homeland. 
When nations have been conquered and driven from their homeland, within one generation, their entire culture is lost. They lose their language. They lose their music. They lose their dress. They lose their food, everything. Their ethnicity, however you want to say that, is forever lost. More almost, well, it was, what, 1,500 years before they were back in the land at all. It was almost 2,000 years before they were made a nation again. And they came back completely intact. Music, culture, food, speech, everything intact. Resurrected from the dead, as it were. Historically, that's miraculous. We can look at that. That's what this is partly saying, is we can look at that and trust in the resurrection for ourselves. Physical resurrection, spiritual resurrection. Look at Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 11, where it says, Now it happened the day after that he went into the city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, speaking of Jesus, and a large crowd, when he had come near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out. There's a funeral procession taking place. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, so now she's left completely alone. And a large crowd from the city was with her, meaning that she probably had a great deal of respect amongst the community. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and present, he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up amongst us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. I would think so. It's very important to understand that this doctrinal position of resurrection embodied in Jesus Christ, capable of doing these things, is available to us today. Um, I would strongly encourage you. You can still get copies. It's out of print. There's a book called Why Revival Tarries, written by Leonard Ravenhill. Go on Amazon. Go on one of these formats and get the book. Okay, read it and understand that the reason our culture is in so much decay, the reason we have not seen a resurrection in the church, a revival taking place, right? Let's be clear about uh, revival. Um, uh, you know, we talk about revival. Revival is restoring that which was previously awake or alive, right? So we talk about our culture outside these doors that is godless and has no faith and has never been part of the church and we pray for revival. That's not revival, okay? That would, that would be them experiencing awakening, okay? That would be them uh, being brought to life. That's a different thing. When we pray for revival, you're praying for the church at that point. That which was previously awake, that which was previously alive, being awakened or brought back to life. And that is needed. We need the power of the resurrection in the church. In the church. 
The church needs to be awakened and brought back to liveliness, functionality, right? It doesn't matter, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting process we go through as a culture now of embalming and preserving a body and painting it and making it look all beautiful. And that's wonderful for the experience of the memorial service and all of that, but that's a dead person. And honestly, that's what we've done with the church. We've enshrined it and we've painted it and we've glorified it, and we've made it look good, but it's dead. It needs to be brought back to life. We need to have the life of Christ surging into the church. This resurrection of this young man is, is a wonderful picture of the church and what needs to happen. Great throngs of people gathered around and mourning and celebrating this life and this woman and this dear saint and dead is what we're looking at. Resurrection is what is needed, the power of Christ in the church. What did the scripture warn us of, right? Being around those people that have a form of godliness and yet deny the power thereof. The power of Christ is the power of resurrection to bring that which was dead back to life. Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 35. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, this is Jairus, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. I'll say that to you this morning. You've made your attempts at a resurrected life. You've prayed for whatever your circumstances are and haven't had success. And you know you've come to that conclusion of, it's dead. That's okay. In Jesus Christ's economy of things, that's no big deal. Right? You know, we go through those different experiences and we reach a certain place and we give up on a thing. Christ never does. He's the God of all creation. He can handle it. He permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. He came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, saw a tumult, and those who wept and wailed aloud. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping, because that's how the Lord considers death, right? That uh, it's merely something that he can revive. They ridiculed him. When he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered into the child where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha, Kumai, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, she, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. He commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given to her to eat. Listen. While that's right in your mind, I want to point out that in that same passage, there was the woman who met Jesus on the way to this resurrection, and she had the issuance of blood for 12 years. And in that passage, it's actually recorded that she had said in her heart, if she could only touch the hem of his robe, that she would experience healing. And she did experience healing 
back up to the nation of Israel in the wilderness of sin after they've come out of Egypt before they enter Canaan. And the Lord tells them to embroider blue into the hem of their robes. By the time Jesus arrives, they've turned that into a tradition of the symbols of their family lineage they embroider into their robes. So each of the tribes has a symbol for their family, and they would embroider that into the hem of their robe. And this is why Jesus says to them, you broaden the borders of your garments so that people can see as they walk down the street, oh, he's from the tribe of Levi, or oh, he's from the tribe of Judah. That They've embroidered very broadly this into it. She says, if I can just touch the hem of his robe, right, his lineage. She touches him, she's healed. This little girl is 12 years old. The whole time this girl has been alive, this woman has been suffering from her circumstances. Notice the parallel, right? Jesus Christ can produce life in a dead girl or restore life to a woman who's had the struggles for the same period of time. You got to draw some parallels between these resurrections that we're seeing in your own life. What can Christ do in your heart and mind? What does this power of resurrection mean to you now, today? How does it have application in your life, right? Because if you're just relegating it to that day where they put you in a box in the ground, you're missing the larger portion of what Christ is saying about the power of resurrection. It's the here and the now. John chapter 11, we read the resurrection of Lazarus when we were together last week. I would encourage you to review John 11 verses 38 through 44. Lazarus had reached the state of decomposition. And we even talked about the fact that the Jews had the uh, wives tale that the spirit of an individual hovered over the body for three days and then would depart. And that's why Jesus waited four days to go and resurrect Lazarus in order to nullify the uh, wives' tale that was common amongst the Jews. Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 53. This is what I told you when we were in Isaiah. You should remember the prophecy of Jesus' resurrection and the dead that were resurrected with him. Isaiah, Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom at his death. The earthquake, the rocks split. Verse 52 says, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I like the fact that Isaiah says that they would go into the city and that they would sing and rejoice. I would think you would. You know what I'm saying? You wake up in a tomb and realize that you've been resurrected. Hopefully there's going to be a song in your heart. And you're going to go and present yourself to people. And there's some debate about what happened to them. Did they die again? Uh, my personal conviction is that they remained upon earth for the 40 days that Jesus performed his ministry, and then when he ascended into heaven, they ascended into heaven with him. Debatable. It is my opinion. I'm not saying it's totally you know, based on uh, Scripture, but there are a number of things that lead me 
to believe that. <clears throat> Jesus' resurrection. Luke 24, verses 1 through 6. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain women with them came to the tomb bringing spices, which they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in and did not find the body of the Lord. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then they were afraid, bowed their faces to the earth. And they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. That's uh, an interesting point in regard to all of these documentaries made by the mockers that I mentioned earlier, because the, the concentration of what they're doing is they're looking for the living Jesus Christ amongst the dead. Oh, we found Jesus' tomb. <clears throat> That's like saying you found um, you know, someone named John's tomb, right? Jesus was an extremely common name in Jesus' day. Hey, you're going to be able to go to any graveyard in America and find a tremendous number of Johns that are in tombs. Uh, here, you know, what, what we're experiencing is, you know, Jesus' resurrection and the angels telling them that he's not amongst the dead anymore. Matthew chapter 28, again, Jesus' resurrection now after the Sabbath on the first day of the week began to dawn. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay, meaning inside the tomb. A couple of points we'll touch on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, the Max Licato wrote the book uh, years ago called He Still Moves Stones. And the premise of the book is that the stone was moved out of the way so that the people who came to the tomb could see into the empty tomb. Uh, there's an implication sometimes taught by pastors. They, well-meaning, don't intend to teach something incorrect, but <clears throat> they, they falsely teach that the stone was rolled out of the way so that Jesus could come out of the tomb. Okay, We see Jesus passing through walls, in and out of houses, appearing and disappearing at will at this point. And according to what we've just read and the next two that we're going to read, Jesus is already gone. He's already left the tomb when they come and roll the stone out of the way so that the people can see into the tomb. Have you got things that are in the way of your heart and mind? Things that you're saying, I'd like to believe I'd love to hold on to this faith that you're describing, but I struggle with this thing. Ask the Lord to move it. He's a stone mover. He likes to move obstacles out of the way so that you can believe, so that you're not tripped up by the circumstances. This tomb was opened for our sake so that we can see inside of it, even thousands of years later through the scripture, and understand Jesus Christ was, in fact, resurrected. Another point you may come to, and I'll try to present this on Resurrection Sunday, is, oh, well, I'm hearing you describe differences uh, in Luke's account, Matthew's account, Mark's account, and John's account. So those differences must mean that these are wrong because they are different than one another. 
Uh, I have several friends who are law enforcement officers, and when they investigate a circumstance, they look for differences. Whenever they're questioning a group of people and everybody has the same story, they immediately assume this is a lie. These people have collaborated together so that all of their details are identical to one another, and they're telling us a story that they fabricated together. It's the differences between one person's story and the next person's story and the next person's story. When they put it together, they can get the whole picture and go, oh, now I understand. I've got a uh, document of all of resurrection from Jesus uh, rising from the dead to his ascension into heaven 40 days later. That is all of the events put in order and they don't contradict one another at all. So understand that the differences here are a collaboration of confirmation. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 6. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, the Mary, the mother of James, Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, young and uh, said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? And when they looked up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in long white robes sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Continuing, John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. Then he ran and came, she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not, we do not know where they have laid him. So an account of Jesus Christ's resurrection. A few more. Accounts of resurrection in the scripture before we close. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you that the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, for I delivered to you first of all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then he was seen by Cephas, that is Peter, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, meaning that they've passed away. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. I think the most significant thing within that passage is there was an occasion where more than 500 people saw Jesus resurrected from the dead all at once. So again, it isn't just that Christians and a few numbers saw him. His resurrection was very public. Last two references, this power of resurrection, continuing in its work, Acts chapter 9, 
Verse 39, then Peter arose and went with them. <clears throat> when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. All the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was alive. But Peter put them all out, meaning outside, and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, and uh, when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. This power of resurrection continuing to be at work in the life of the apostles. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20, last reference, beginning at verse 9. <clears throat> and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Very important that you understand <clears throat> that they confirmed his death. Okay? This is, he's going to be resurrected here in a moment. And the way it's described, some people want to say that Eutychus didn't die. Okay? They confirmed his death. This young man sustained injuries that were such that he died in the fall. Verse 10, but Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. And when he had come up, had broken bread at Eden, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, they departed. Eutychus was raised back to life by Paul, the power of Jesus Christ's resurrection. We need to understand personally how this power Again, is the central message of our faith. This is the thing that is in war, at work in each one of us. If, if you <clears throat> are sitting there thinking, it hasn't touched me the way you're describing. It, it, it's, it's, you know, resurrection, newness of life is not part of my life. I would strongly encourage you to study uh, Romans chapter 6. And be here next week. We're, we're going to look at in depth at what it means to have the power of Jesus Christ at work in your life, in your heart, and in your mind. Our message as a church needs to be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our society has, Christianity as a society, has lost touch with this completely. I just... Reading again uh, recently, just two nights ago, about um, what I would say was one of the last great revivals in the United States, what, what became known as the Jesus Movement of the 70s, the late 60s and early 70s. Um, started in Calvary Chapel, um, and it, it was a work done amongst the hippies, where <clears throat> people who were profoundly messed up on drugs and alcohol, started going to churches and hearing about the power of the Lord to work in their lives. And they surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, and the world was changed because of it. Here, here's my point. We can hear all of these things. We can be fascinated with these things. We can want and desire these things. But I have no power 
in myself to administer, to deliver, to distribute the power of the resurrection. The power of resurrection belongs to God alone. To God alone. I need to have this power in my life. What we see, particularly Peter and Paul doing in those last two references that I just gave you, they're only capable of doing because that power has already worked in them. And then they're working it in other people's lives. What we need to pray for as, as a body of believers is the power of the resurrection. We're working in us, working through us. We, we have no ability to see any of this done. Just knowing it, right? Just knowing it doesn't give you the power. You have, you have to, what's that whole thing? You, you can't give somebody the chicken pox unless you've got the chicken pox. We, we need to have this working in our lives. And that's where I would say we need to begin in the prayer. Is what is the Lord doing in regard to resurrection in my life. Read, review Romans chapter 6 this week, and, and let's look at it together again next week with that humble heart that says, this is what I need in my life. This uh, Again, I, I, I know I'm being very repetitive this morning, uh, more than even usual, but I really want you to understand, this is the message of our entire belief system. Throughout the entirety of the scripture, resurrection is what it's all about. And we need to have our lives surrendered to that resurrection in order to see it working in other people's lives. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Are you out of breath like I'm out of breath? It's a lot of scripture to cover. Guys asked me this morning, what passage are you going to be in? I said, I'm going to go from Job to Revelation. So, you know. The work of the Lord throughout the scripture. Father, we thank you very much for your message, for your power. And we ask that you help us to be surrendered to it, Lord. Work in our lives, please. Help us to be men and women that are surrendered to you. Lord, to whatever degree this isn't going on in our lives, convict us. Help us to surrender. Lord, we agree with that Father who brought his child to you that said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We want to be surrendered. We want to see and experience this resurrection, and we want to see it in other people's lives. Help us to be your servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.